You're listening to And hey everyone, welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. It is Friday, August the 21st. 2020. My name is Marvin Yeh, and thank you for joining us once again uh, to talk about all the good pop that gets us through our days. Joining me to talk about that good pop, we have self-proclaimed professional Asian-American Jess Jew. What's up? Hello. How's it going, Jess? Everything is terrible. Everything is terrible. It's fire season, Marvin. Oh, God. It's um, And it's hot. It's been and like a hundred and like eight degrees outside every single day it's been hot it's been hot and like there's like rolling outages and you know they're gonna shut off our power to do maintenance which is good in the long run i understand but like not looking forward to that yeah everything's gonna melt in your house oh yeah oh my god i hope we i hope everything in my fridge like stays alive (laughs) just gotta eat it all i can't that's so much food han I mean, you have family members to help you. We just uh, we yeah. just bought a couple of tomahawk steaks from Trader Joe's because they sell uh, them. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Thirteen bucks that a pound. Delightful. <laughs> wow, that's a little rich for my blood, but I do miss steak. <laughs> uh, that voice, of course, is our other co-host, culture editor Han Win. How's it going, Han? Hi, uh, I'm eating ice cream straight from the carton, so that's yeah, how you it's are. going. I mean, that's just it's living. It's that kind of, yeah, <laughs> it's that kind of life right now. I was supposed to say like week, but really it's been like the month, been the year. So it's that kind of life right yeah. now. What's your, what's, your, what's your preferred ice cream? Okay, so there are a few. First of all, it has to have some sort of element of dark chocolate because I can't do all sweet. Mm. And then usually um, something... Uh, textural so usually the dark chocolate chip is enough so i'm eating mint chocolate chip right now but i also like the trader joe's cherry um no dairy ice cream because it's cherry dark chocolate um ice cream Ooh, and it's it with like dark cherry, chocolate chips it's it really like good. cherry garcia it's like cherry garcia that's what got me started on it because i uh after the first month of the pandemic when i was eating cherry garcia all the time um i noticed that it was harder and harder to get so when I found this one at, at Trader Joe's, it's not quite the same, but I really like it. And I like the fact that it's no dairy um, because even though I can eat dairy, I try to limit it. You see, my thing with non-dairy ice cream, especially the ones that are made with coconut milk, is I don't know if I can like the coconutness oh, kind of gets no, to me. No, it, it's not. Or at least I don't think it's too much because I actually can't take a lot of coconut. So I think mm. it's tofu. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, soy. so it's good. soy. So yeah, just, just give it a give it a try. Maybe <laughs> I, I will look I at want the full fat, or I want nothing. <laughs> I do like full fat, like especially when it comes to cheese. But I I am open to soy ice creams just because that was the one that had that flavor. You know, <laughs> I, I always get into this like argument, not a real argument, but there's like there's a disagreement with me and my boyfriend. He buys a lot of these like Halo Top or like milk substitute like lower calorie options and i'm like i'd rather have one bite of the real thing than a whole pint of like the 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 alternative version because it's just not gonna satisfy me it's like give me give me that hagen dust or give me nothing don't knock halo top for those of us who need to cut down on our sugar intake halo top is terrible (laughs) it does not taste like ice cream i I would just say if you can eat sugar then go for the full fat full sugar but also if you can eat dairy um so that's how i balance it out i eat eat one quart of regular ice cream and one quart of this soy ice cream is that how it works is that how nutrition works (laughs) because yes it is it's a balanced diet that was that was my um that was my justification when i was in college and i would get like two slices of pizza and like a salad and i would say the salad balances out the pizza in a way, it does. It, does. it gives you roughage and it gives you uh, extra vitamins that you wouldn't have gotten if you just ate three slices of pizza. I guess. Yeah. But net wise, I'm still like ingesting like 800 calories of food. Just, I mean, you're net- supposed to dab the oil, dab the oil off the pizza. <laughs> that saves you like a few hundred calories over the year. Let me just say I miss pizza so much. I haven't had pizza in like months. Hey, um, the, p- pizza delivers though. You can always get I know, pizza. but it's just me. 
you know what I mean? It's kind of like I, mean, I don't even, see no problem. Even better, only you get opportunity. like cold pizza, exactly. leftover pizza. Okay, I don't, I don't actually eat cold pizza when it's leftover. I reheat it, but um, I'm gonna try to see uh, if I can just pick up some. I, there's a place near me I like, and I last time I remember it, like a ca- no, it caught on fire, but oh, I, no. think op- oh, I think it's open. I think it's open again. I think so, it's open again. So hopefully, I miss shitty chain pizza. Like, give me a good. I mean, pizza look. Fight. At this point, I'll eat it all right now. <laughs> but that's like the easiest thing to get, Marvin. You could just del- get it delivered to you. Did you eat the rectangle pizza as a kid In from school? school? Yeah, the oh, floppy yeah. one with like the plastic cheese. Yeah, good stuff. Still good with, though, with the little round uh, sausage pieces. <laughs> as shitty as those were, those like the line was always packed on pizza day. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, I mean, that was one of the best things. We uh, we had hamburger day and then um, and then I hated so much was Sloppy Joe Day because I didn't like the Sloppy Joe sauce. Yeah, I didn't like Sloppy, sloppy Joe. Sloppy Joe Day was disgusting. I didn't like McRib Turkey Day. Witch day. Oh, I like the rib Oh, we had like a rib, rib sandwich. No, oh, there's, that, like is that. Not, that did not come from an animal, Marvin. I hated I know, the sauce. But, I mean, I think us having that as a part of, I'm assuming we all, we all went to public school, so that's why we're talking about public school lunch right <laughs> yes. now. Yes. I mean, if we were private school, it better be better food. I remember they called it the Ribby Q on our menu. Oh, God. Right. Yes. You know, it was terrible. Yeah. That was very rare where I was from. However, people were excited about it, and I was always very sad. <laughs> I don't like my um, savory mixed with my sweet sauces. Oh, you know? but that's barbecue. That's wh- Yeah, that's why I like a dry rub. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, so. yeah. Well, we're not here to talk about our school lunch days. We're here to talk about the new HBO series, Lovecraft Country that just premiered this past week. We're going to talk about our reactions to the first episode and we'll probably come back later in the year uh, once it's wrapped up to review the whole season. But uh, before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture has been getting us through the week. Uh, Let's start with Jess. What's popping? So in my string of low stakes British reality television watching, I have started Glow Up, which just premiered on Netflix. It's, I think there's only one season on, but uh, they're showing us their season two. It's it's very straightforward. It's a bunch of like emerging makeup artists. Some of them are like Instagram famous. Some of them are going to school for it, but none of them are working professionally as a makeup artist, and they get put through a series of challenges. It's much more based in real world. Like uh, this is a fashion editorial, or this is an ad campaign, or this is a theatrical makeup. So they have a series of challenges each episode. And it's very calming and it's very fun to see people who are good at what they do, uh, you know, do their craft. And it's something that I have like watched probably millions of hours of makeup tutorials on YouTube and I still cannot do a basic smoky eye. So I also watch <laughs> with like admiration and envy. Uh, it's really fun. It's much more real and like kind of grounded than face off which is another makeup reality show but that's more based in like character design and sci a lot of sci-fi work um it is on the sci-fi channel so it's not that um but there is a you know quintessential over-the-top british judge it's their paul hollywood her name is val garland and for some reason her catchphrase when she's pleased is Ding dong. <laughs> and I have no context. True. Like, I went with no context. And I'm just like, I don't get it. But sure, ding dong. So, uh, really, really interesting. Uh, really, you know, fun, lighthearted. Uh, you can breeze through it in and out, you know, in a few hours. You can put it on in the background and pop in when you need to would recommend i mean how's the competition are you are you invested in the competitors oh definitely like everyone's very it's just very they're very talented i mean sometimes i think casting is key right so there's definitely some there's a good mix of characters you know heartfelt like stories of overcoming adversity one one man has tourette's uh and he actually has like a tick so he like he he and when that pops up when he's stressed but he's like oh like i don't let it stop me and it's like he's he's done amazing um the challenges are pretty cool it's like you have to come up with like a a look based off a like an icon an icon you they had to do like a 
Lion King challenge where you had to replicate one of the makeup looks for one of the characters head to head. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's just people doing people being good. At, it's it's very much in that like British mode where it's like we're it's really gonna be about people being good at what they do <laughs> instead of like we're gonna cast like the cattiest people who like are gonna drive that drama. And I am very much in the camp of like I I'm not a Bravo person. I'm not like a what's that like below deck or I'm just like watching Selling Sunset <laughs> so the, right now. Yeah, like, not yeah. in that mode. Me neither. I, I don't like mean people being bitchy to each other. Um, I just like seeing like people be really good at what they do, and it's really they're amateur. So they every episode the prize is usually just like you get to assist or help like a professional makeup artist, and they're just so like happy to like learn. And I'm like, oh, this is very wholesome. It's so funny because as lowbrow as most of Bravo's lineup is, they're also home to the best version of Compton's porn reality television, which is Top Chef, right? Yes. I mean, it's after Top Chef and um, Project Runway, they kind of just went downhill after that on the strength yeah. of those two. <laughs> but I do think there's certain types of, I think chef culture has traditionally be, been a little more like ego driven. So you will get those like extreme personalities. But, you know, these are not, again, they're not professionals. They're all quite lovely. It's very much more Great, great British Bake Off. Uh, then Top Chef. Are they doing makeup on people of color? Yes. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's it's set in London. So, like, their models range in skin tone. There's both male and female models. The contestants, you know, range in series from variety of backgrounds. There is one Asian girl. You know, I'm rooting for her. Her name's Ophelia. <laughs> like, love it. Uh, and they're all very like cool they look very cool they all have really good hair and good makeup obviously and it's like i'd hang with y'all okay i saw that come up and i didn't know if i should watch it but i'll check it out did you like the glass blowing show yeah yeah i i, I was, think you I like this that. okay i think you like this <laughs> if you like great british bake off the glass blowing show and like project <laughs> runway you'll probably like glow up okay all right yeah. Where is it playing again? It's streaming on Netflix right now. So check it out if you need something chill. Uh, but Han, what's popping with you? I also have a Netflix recommendation. Um, it is a brand new docuseries. Uh, it's a six-part docuseries called High Score. And it's all about like the history of video games. So I, I was kind of bracing. I was for just a lot of white men. Hmm. And there are quite a lot of white men in the history um, as far as development and marketing and the gamers themselves. However, um, I think they do a really good job of trying to make sure it's balanced. So of course, half of the games that we all know in gaming systems and um, are from Japan. So the very first game they even feature is Space Invaders, which is created by a Japanese man. And um, they go through the development of Nintendo and creating you know, Donkey Kong through mario brothers and all that type of stuff um the competitions between the different gaming systems how people would uh like how people from mit would even create like sort of expansion packs for the actual arcade games to make them harder and until um so there was just a lot of really cool stuff there a lot of games you know or at least i knew growing up including um computer games like uh pc games and um, what I was very pleasantly surprised about was that they also unearthed a few unknown stories to me, which are that included uh, people of color, like a black gay man named Gordon Bellamy, who always played video games because he felt like he could um, fit in, you know, behind the screen. And he dreamt of becoming a developer, which he did eventually. And so he added the first black characters to Madden football. Um and let's see, I think there was a guy who created a role-playing game with the first LGBTQ characters, um, a woman who was one of the first people to create um, a text-based video game that had graphics in it. Um, so yeah, it was actually really cool to see all these lesser-known stories, and they did have make an effort um, to also have fun with it. So um, besides some, you know, recreations where they actually had like one guy reenact himself in the 80s and put on a bad mullet um they also had animations 
that looked slightly 8-bit style, but it was since it was actually animation, they would also use elements of anime to kind of create some funny moments um, and to recreate the moments that they were uh, discussing since they clearly didn't have like the documentary footage for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as someone who is into video games, I'm sure that I'll find a lot of things that I like, but um, would you recommend this for people who aren't familiar with that world? Um, absolutely, yeah, because I think it will get people into it and they of course mention a few things that you do know it does stop however at doom which was one of the first really big um first person shooter games and um because they wanted to show that you know the development of the game started off with you know let's say the console like pong that only played one game then the games that had you know cartridges and then this is the ultimate pc game because like it didn't they were trying to make it as smooth as like the consoles and so this one created interactivity of course um with other players so they're like finally you are actually in the game in a way <laughs> as yourself um so who knows if they'll make more because they since it stops at doom you don't get all the things that you know you love and that you're playing right now um there's no animal crossing there's no pokemon go which i would <laughs> love to see them dig into that um, but who knows if it does well, it, it would, uh, there's plenty to choose from. So Marvin, that was mine. What's popping with you? So I'm still in my summer of getting back in touch with, um, Japanese culture and media. Um, I've somehow moved from anime to manga to now I'm reading a light novel series called 86 and light novels. For those of you who aren't familiar are, I would say the equivalent of YA fiction in the States. They're oh. usually serialized novels with some light illustrations inside. And a lot of the current batch of manga and anime series are actually adaptations of light novels. Um, so there's a whole um, industry ecosystem where um, the most popular of these novels get licensing deals to adapt their stories into um other mediums. And there's always the search for the next big IP. I know in Japan, they actually hold writing competitions for light novel authors and award the winners with uh, limited publishing deals. So 86 is a light novel series that started publishing, I think, back in 2017. Um, there are eight total volumes out currently, um, with five translated so far in English. And it's a sci-fi uh, military drama about an alternate future version of Western Europe um, that is under siege uh, by a uh, rogue robot army. So the story itself is set in a nation called the Republic of San Magnolia. It's a giant uh, city-state that's divided into 85 sectors and is a country that once prided itself as like the bastion of freedom and equality and was home to a lot of immigrants and who lived together in harmony and prosperity. Um, but that all changed uh, when the war started and they quickly found themselves um, under siege by this AI army that was initially sent by a neighboring nation modeled after Imperial Germany um, to invade them. So they are forced essentially to bunker up and retreat within the 85 sectors of this nation state. And in the process deemed anyone who's not a native um, to be essentially enemy aliens and strip them of their citizenship. And in this um, anime world, um, the races are kind of denoted by their hair color and their eye color. And so in this world, the natives of San Magnolia are a race of people who have silver hair and silver eyes, um, whereas everyone else in this world has like colored <laughs> hair, colored eyes. So it's like racism on steroids. Yeah, so the author has admitted to taking inspiration from the worst parts of both the Axis and Allied countries' um, actions during World War II. <laughs> For example, the uh, order to strip all of the non-essentially white citizens of their citizenship and exile them into internment camps is literally called Presidential Order 6609. Oh, God, wow. That's, that's not even trying to hide it. <laughs> yeah, so the internment camps are set up in the 86th sector of the nation, which is outside the city limits, and all the people there are referred to as 86ers, um, hence the name. Um, and the story is about a group of them um, that are conscripted as essentially child soldiers to defend the Republic against um, 
the unmanned assault of the robot army in return for restoring civil rights to their families. The soldiers themselves are referred to as processors because um, they're not seen as human by their oppressors. So essentially, they're processing units for their um, quote-unquote unmanned uh, mechs, um, which they call drones. And so because they're not seen as human, um, any loss experienced in war um, is not considered a casualty. Damn, this is dark-ass shit. <laughs> How is this a light novel series? I... <laughs> I know you got chi- you got like concentration camps. You have child soldiers. Uh, you have drone warfare. I mean, I guess uh, it's like Hunger have- Games. No, it's right? it's kind of a little bit. It's kind of worse. Um, so yeah, the setting is pretty dark. And in terms of like the, uh. this is not your typical like shonen type of story where it's about heroes. It's about war and the horrible things people do to each other, um, with war as an excuse. Um, with othering as an excuse, with xenophobia as an excuse, and what happens to um, not only the people who get oppressed, but the people who do the oppressing and the degradation of morals on both sides. Um, the side that does the oppressing um, starts to believe its own um, bullshit and becomes less and less redeemable. And the oppressed find themselves also degrading their own morals and their own standards in order to survive being oppressed and dehumanized. And so the main story is about this group of elite soldiers who are assigned to one of the most hotly contested areas in the defensive zone. They're a team of people who have survived multiple years of this um, war, where the survival rate is about 1%. And the story starts when they meet their new commanding officer, who's essentially, quote-unquote, one of the good ones, um, who believes in the humanity of the 86 and is upset about how they're being treated. Um, She's characterized as idealistic but naive. And a lot of the drama in the story is her attempts to connect with her new squad, as well as trying to change um, things from within. And her story arc kind of follows her becoming disillusioned with her country and the despair she feels when she realizes that the country that she serves and believes in um, no longer follows its own values and has no interest in course correcting. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. depressing <laughs> as fuck, Marvin. I don't know if That's I can handle this. But the action is really good. Um, it's like mech combat. Um, the but robots. The battle scenes are written really well, and it's really exciting. And it's asking a lot of really interesting questions for a piece of Japanese fiction. You know, it was really interesting to see, like, a Japanese take on American internment and kind of dramatizing that because I think it's something that we haven't really done um, at least seriously in American media, um, there was the terror last year, which was like a horror taking place in an internment camp. And of course, we had the musical Allegiance. But in the grand canon of American media, uh, portrayals of American internment camps are pretty few and far between. Yeah, the terror and then Babysitter's Club, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it's true. It's, it's remarkable. Other than like some really bad like romantic movies, I think wasn't Snow Falling on Cedars oh, one yes. of those? And there was one with Tamlin Tomita and Dennis Quaid. I mean, yeah, and just, where Dennis Quaid is the main character of, of a course. Japanese internment story. Because of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's also interesting because I also wonder how Japan like has digested any of these ideas having not been here because this this is a japanese product right it's not a japanese american yeah i mean again the author took inspiration from like world war ii era germany france britain and Mm. america and also, like the worst parts well, of that also, era too. So you know? really, I Japan mean, they have their own. They have their own track record of atrocities a, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny because I just, I mean, it just shows that around the world, it's we're really more similar <laughs> than we think. Because Asians I've, I've can visited, be awful I have, too. We can be terrible too, and I have definitely, especially being of you know Chinese descent, you know, there has always there's always been a slight bias against Japanese people and the country. Um, you know, I I don't think it really trickled down to my generation, but definitely like my grandparents. Um they've seen some shit. And, you know, I was in Japan not too long ago and I was at the you know, the, mm-hmm. the monument in Hiroshima. And of course, you know, it's it we've we just were reflected. It was just the anniversary early in August. 
And, it, you know, it was probably the most egregious use of nuclear weapons on human civilians, let alone, like, any humans, and it's awful. But I was walking through this museum, this monument, and definitely the language they choose to present uh, maybe makes them a little more innocent sounding than they were because, you know, again, coming from a family of Chinese descent, you know, they're the bad guys in some of our stories. And just like in America, we're the bad guys to a lot of yeah. people's stories. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's uh, you know, you can both be a victim I mean, and even a perpetrator within, like, at yeah. the same time. So it's just really interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's called the 86. Um, <laughs> Why 86? Because they're the citizens of the 86 district outside of the 85 districts of the Republic. And also because oh. 86 is um, slang for canceled. Yes, because that's what I was thinking it was. Because uh, they definitely talk about 86 and people here. Yeah. Uh, or or things. <laughs> it's a really interesting series. The setting is dark. Um, there's still a ton of anime tropes, but like it doesn't really get that cheesy. Um, it actually takes itself pretty seriously, I think. So um, if you're interested, um, I'm definitely, I've been hooked. I've been reading the novel straight for the last few nights. I'm almost done with the third novel. I'm going to start the fourth one probably this weekend. Um, it definitely goes places and definitely expands the world. And I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm excited to see what the adaptation looks like. But uh, for those of you interested, it's called 86. Um, it's by a novelist. Uh, under the pen name Asato Asato, and it's available wherever you get your books. Yeah. Fun stuff. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, I guess, more racism um, in the new HBO series Lovecraft Country. Stick around. Kathy, Kim, Steve, what's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots, because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, no. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It, it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So... Are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean drama podcast at koreandramapod.com. Gotcha! Am I going to see sauna towel buns? And we're back. Uh, we're here today to talk about the new HBO series Lovecraft Country. Produced by Jordan Peele and Misha Green, who is the showrunner. Um, based on a book by Matt Ruff, Lovecraft Country is a story about Atticus Freeman, who is a Korean War veteran who comes home to Chicago to uh, search for his missing dad. And on the way encounters not only the cosmic horrors of the Lovecraftian mythos, but also the real world terrors and horrors of American racism. Oh, yes. And you know what? You know, I, I mean, we're not supposed to, like, we're supposed to be scared of these monsters, and I get it, but, like, the I'm kind of on the side of the monsters right now, you know? They they did them a solid. They they fucked up some racists, <laughs> uh, and I I love it. I would watch a super cut. It, it's, it's like the cinematic equivalent of, like, watching the, like, like, camera phone footage of someone being racist on the subway or something, and then someone punching them. It's like that on like steroids, this show, and I very I would I and love it. They were able to outwit the racists because the racists couldn't figure out what to do about the monsters, and they also didn't believe them when the monster was like right in their face and they wouldn't even shoot him. Oh, that part had me laughing my ass off. It was such like a subtle commentary on like cops looking out for each other even to their own detriment um it was great i was like shoot and and he's so calm atticus who goes by tick is like he's so calm he's like i would really suggest you shoot him now 
And this guy's just like so dead. This this white police officer, sheriff's officer, is just so like dead in the like dead scared, doesn't know what to do, and like ends up you know getting like eaten alive. Sorry, spoiler, well, yes. spoilers. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's monsters in the trailer. And also, so, you should um, just you should have seen this first episode by now. <laughs> it is free, streaming for free uh, on YouTube right now. I'm sure they're trying to give you a little taste, so you will buy the HBO Max or the HBO subscription. And you know what? <laughs> I think this is the show that's like finally gonna make me do that. I mean, so as two people who aren't too keen on horror as a genre, um, what were your thoughts about this? Well, that's it. the weird thing. I think um, supernatural horror, I'm a little bit better at than, let's say, slasher horror. Um, I actually used to read H.P. Lovecraft as a kid. I didn't love it because I could feel him being kind of evil. Um, and, you know, when you talk about <laughs> ancient horrors coming from the ground and stuff like that, you know, that gets you as a kid. But, you know, we had a few books around the house, so I read those and I was a huge fan of that. But, like, monsters and let's say vampires and that type of stuff i'm okay with i'm okay with gore oddly enough it's just that movie horrors are usually more tense and so for me the horror elements the actual monsters no big deal it was the racist parts that were just like i was my i got an ulcer like it's so was, tense oh yeah my God. so tense like as soon as you you see like them in like the car pull up i'm like this is my life i'm like i don't want to see this car um but yeah <laughs> it was really cool how they used horror elements to depict the cops right and this story takes place in 1950s um, jim crow era united states which you know thinking back it's wild that like Jim Crow laws weren't fully repealed until the Civil Rights Act, which is in the 60s, right? So this is still, this is like the time yeah. of our parents, right? The, now, it, that they're the amount of like racism that followed uh, with, with Reconstruction and through the Jim Crow era was horrifying because of course everyone's like, no, there's no slavery, so it's all fine. Uh. Yeah, but I, would, I <laughs> love the fact that, so, so they're from Chicago. He goes back home to the South Side of Chicago. But his dad, before he disappears, writes him this letter, and they're basically searching via this clue that brings them to, of all places, Massachusetts, which is very staunchly in the North, which we think of as a liberal ground, a blue state. Um, and this is where they encounter the super racist cops and the Sundown County. Uh, I mean, the first episode is called Sundown. And <laughs> so I just love the fact that you know, we're not even in the South and yeah. it's still prevalent uh, and it's still horrific. Um, I, I mean, think, segregation happened in the North, like in big cities and things yeah, like Yeah, but we don't think of Jim Crow as a Northern concept, you know? I, yeah, I mm. like that it blows up that sort of myth that the North is like a bastion of liberalism and, you know, and desegregation. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> look what happened this year up in the north so yeah <laughs> it's been yeah um but like back to the scene where the scene where the cop shows up and it's played like no one notices it except the audience right you mm -hmm. see like this threatening presence start creeping up to the group and it very much reminded me of like a monster series where the entire audience is screaming at the heroes look behind you but they don't until it's too late right yeah it's basically everything that happens to these heroes with the racists than the racist experience with these monsters, you know? And so it, it's like, it's not super subtle, but at the same time, it's like, if you don't get it, you know? <laughs> and, and for me, of course, ha having, you know, feeling the bigger tension and fear from watching the racists do things, you know, I, I think hopefully people get it. This is the first episode. So it's, it's the pilot, right? And the purpose of a pilot is to set up the story. Um, I'm wondering, just as someone who has read plenty of pilots in her day, yes, um, how how this stacks up. <laughs> I thought, I mean, it's a long pilot. It, this clocks in in over an hour, but I was never bored. I think Misha Green, who again is adapted it, wrote the first episode as the showrunner. Uh, she was the showrunner for Underground, which was a 2016 a, a series a few years ago. I just think she did a great job. I think she sets up the world perfectly and that's helped uh in part we could talk more about this later, but in, you know, the production value, the money that she was able to spend on this show is 
deserve warranted and i'm very happy to see that they're investing like prestige money on a show with mainly black people run by a black woman so i you know we see atticus um he's our main figure but of course in in like he's the hero but you know heroes tend to be very straightforward and he's very all-american he's a war vet we see him in the first shot he's wearing you know we see him in the seat he has his dream sequence but the first time we see him in the real world he looks like a varsity you know all-american kid he's, he's always wearing a too tight t-shirt and he looks tight fantastic enough. in it dude or he's shirtless both he, atticus is played by uh jonathan majors who was in the last black man in san francisco beautiful just a beautiful man <laughs> wonderful actor um and i i just i'm just i was so intrigued he's so different from the modes of i think just general action heroes let alone black action heroes he is well i noticed you know, obviously that obviously very like, nerdy he loves yeah. reading everyone makes comments about like oh he was a nerd he's has a nose in a book he's reading lovecraft and you know all these other stories and misha green does a really it's not subtle at all, but I don't think you need. You, I don't think you can be subtle in some of these things because people are gonna like discourse and stipulate. Like, just say what you need to say and like get that out of the way. That first thing she's like, okay, yes, Lovecraft was racist, um, and then he makes a comment as the character is like, you know, sometimes you have to love the stories for what they are, and you know, just because they're flawed, you still might love. You might still love them, um, and I just think it shows that you know. I think it's Misha Green very much commenting how stories and art especially cannot serve every purpose and do everything for everyone all the time. If you're striving for that middle ground, you're going to produce basically like gray mush. Yeah, but also this is the thing that we have to deal with all the time or we wouldn't enjoy anything. You know, yes, back in the day, I liked John Hughes films and there are still elements I like about it. Very problematic, of course. Um, and you... It, I don't want to separate, you know, like, you know how people talk about separating the art from the artist. Um, no, he's a problematic, you know, creator. But at the same time, were there things that were really joyous about him? Yeah. So uh, this is what kind of Tick, what Tick is saying. He's like, he's taking the stories for what they are as far as that. But yeah, he would condemn H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft if you met him. Oh, yeah. I, then, I will say yeah. um, the the story he's reading at the beginning is actually the, A Princess of Mars by Edward Rice Burroughs. Yes, um, which is about the titular character John Carter. Yeah. John Carter um, from Mars. Mars. Edward Rice yeah. Burroughs was also the guy who wrote Tarzan. Uh, mm -hmm. Very imperialistic principles as an author, but yeah. also simultaneously literally created the blueprint of modern day science fiction to the point where if you read John Carter and you're like, this sounds super cliche not realizing he invented a lot of those cliches <laughs> yeah, he's, he, and i think that's a yeah yeah perfect encapsulation you know she right. she does a lot to like kind of like get these discussion type things out of the way um so that we can just dive into the story and then she does an incredible job setting up intrigue right so we know like why is tick coming back his dad's missing okay why like and you get a sense that there's a weird relationship history there a fraught relationship then we go into the super warm environment of the south side of Chicago, which I could spend a whole series in, honestly, the way they shot that, all the characters, um, you know, every background character, just like a background actor walking extra look like a really interesting character I'd love to spend more time with. Uh, we meet his uncle, played amazingly by Courtney B. Vance, who is Put also him in everything. a nerd. Who's he also is a nerd. in everything. <laughs> runs a travel company in a la green book the real life green book you know going the around academy award-winning oh we green don't talk book. about that <laughs> but you know his uncle's a very well-read businessman black he, entrepreneur loving wife loving family uh you know he, just he quotes dracula amidst you know da I danger mean, <laughs> dangerous situations i mean that was the thing that i really enjoyed is the main character like the three main characters um so far are all like former nerds, former and current nerds, right? Even the character played by Journey Small, yeah, she was in was a member of club. their um, science fiction club. Can we talk about Letitia <laughs> fucking Lewis? Uh, I wrote in our show notes, we are a Letitia Lewis Journey Smollett fan club now. Uh, what a character! And again, I think this speaks to having a black woman be the showrunner. She's also very mysterious. You know, you get a sense of. 
fraught family relations. You get inklings from a fight with a, her brother that she has. She's p- probably politically involved, probably doing something on a more extreme and like a Black Panthers involvement in DC. I mean, definitely has, something civil rights related. Yes, definitely right? uh, to to a degree that her family's not quite approving of it because she's getting in trouble. You know, she's getting arrested. She's, she's maybe getting in, in good the trouble. Think of things more. Good trouble. <laughs> um and. She is not a damsel. She's extremely capable and is on equal footing with Tick, you know, which is a very, which is rare, unfortunately, in a lot of these genre pieces. You know, she's, you know, women usually get fridged in the genre pieces or they're the damsel in distress. And like she, she saves them, right? She's the one because of racist. uh, She's the one who gets sent out to run after the car and she's like you know what i'm gonna do this like she's not she's freaking out but at the same time she's like i, I just love that interaction where she's like how are you not terrified and he's like fear is not gonna get us anywhere it's not gonna save us but you are and i was like and i mm-hmm. love this show yeah <laughs> I, I well i also love because you know she said i was on track um so she can run but when she actually makes it to the car because it turns out these uh chagas chagas these monsters um don't like the light so, you know, she turns on the lights in the car, but also she's a photographer. So she uses the flashbulb to like, you know, scare off one of them. And so I love that. I love the ingenuity in the moment. I, you know, it's, she's smart. She can think, but she's also an actor. She, she doesn't like, like you were saying, not a damsel in distress. She's not sitting there screaming, you know, she's doing. Oh, and the alf- and I mean, the outfits are incredible. Like Journey Smollett and the 50s wear is a... An amazing match. The I would love. I wouldn't look as good as in any of those outfits, but if I could have some of those outfits specifically, that little like blue shorts number, mm-hmm. and then the her little red pants with the with the white tie shirt. <laughs> oh my god! It's so she's so like again not a hundred percent straight. I'm learning because definitely would jump some kind of fence for her. Oh. All the pants. Like, yes, she looks good in a dress, but all the pants. All the pants, right? She's, I mean, she's, and I like how her character is kind of aware. Her character is definitely aware that she's a beautiful woman and is using that in different ways strategically to her advantage, uh, which is smart because I hate that narrative of like, oh, she doesn't know she's beautiful. (laughs) Which is like such bullshit. But like, we can only award a woman for her beauty if she doesn't know it. But if she knows it, like, oh, we can't, re- like, she's a bitch. I was like, no, 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 no. Calm down. Calm down. Yeah, I like, I I very much appreciate all the production value because like you were saying, they they threw the money at this. And um, I just think back not so long ago when HBO was thinking about Confederate. And... Um, <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> which which they probably will not appreciate me constantly bringing up because they have never literally said it died because they're too embarrassed to actually announce it. Um, but I, by now it's definitely dead. You mean um, you don't want a show called Confederate by the creators of Game of Thrones? Hon? You don't I think mean, those two men are the best shepherds for this story? And then all of a sudden they somehow got shifted to Star Wars and all of a sudden they went to Netflix instead because Star Wars didn't want them. I mean, I don't know. Or back and forth, whoever they end up with, like, yeah, they're going to play hot potato. I mean, I've never seen such a fall from grace from like the, the top of the prestige television land to now like literal pariahs but i'm sure they'll be fine they're they'll too white fine. dudes oh, in the they, industry like. they also don't need to work ever again oh never and please be aware they are pariah not because of any of their questionable sexual gender or racial politics depicted but because they basically blew a multi-billion dollar <laughs> franchise and lost so much goodwill that i think hbo probably on the back end is like scrambling for a way to salvage their cash cow yeah when even the fanboys are angry that's when i'm like oh wow yeah you can't go back on that also like with all the i don't know what with all the drama with you know warner media now i don't know where the money is and who's anywhere you know so 
I mean, I just not feel to listen to like a Game si- of Thrones podcast, but like, <laughs> what happened to all those side projects that were they were doing, like the the prequels and the side stories? So there was one prequel that died, and then they announced another prequel being made for HBO Max um, instead of HBO, and that was the sort of uh, a prequel to the Targaryen story. Um, and uh, House but of since the dragon, yeah, House of the Dragon, House of dragons, yeah. But um, of course, now with production, who knows? Yeah, but I do like that um, HBO has course corrected somewhat by investing in more black led stories, um, such as you know I will destroy you. Um, oh my God, Michaela Cole. Watchmen. I know you have mixed feelings about it, but that was a black led and black centered story, right? And and hey, and, and now Lovecraft Country. Yeah, and hey, if people can learn about racism through Watchmen, I have no quibble with that. That first episode was very powerful, um, and and quite honestly, yeah, it's not about the black depiction of racism in there that I have a problem with. It's other stuff. Yeah, the Asianness, which this story has a surprise. <gasps> Asian character Surprise that I was Asian. not expecting. I forgot, or I didn't even know that Jamie Chung. Yeah, was I forgot in about that. And then um, I was saying that I was like, I turned away from you know my TV for a little bit, and all of a sudden I hear like Korean on the screen. I'm like, what? And I, and I had to rewind. Well, well, did you catch well, that she was it's the like, alien in yeah. the in his like fever in the intro dream sequence? She comes down as a red skin alien. Like, is that Jamie Chung? Yeah. I, I, oddly enough. I did not see that, so I'm gonna have to rewind. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, at first I was like, oh, is Jamie Chung just gonna play an alien? I was like, that's cool. And then, of course, the scene where he calls, you know, we're we're obviously gonna get a look into his time in Korea and the bonds he made there uh, in episode five, which is called Escape from Daegu. Ooh, you know, uh, what's, apparently, yeah. You know what's interesting um, is. Because you know he had served the country, his country, uh, which doesn't really care for him. Um, but then at the, uh, in the very first episode, we do see him walking past a army recruitment or military recruitment table, and it's sort of that you just know it's kind of like that feeling of like, oh man, these poor kids, you know, are trying to f- do something for their country, which it's not going to really pay off. But at the same time, he's not going to interfere. You know, because that is that is part of what part of the growing up is like, you know, you try to see if you can serve your country and if they love you back. But no. Yeah. And I think it's a commentary about how what other option do you have? Mm -hmm. Because he he's very upfront in the in those beginning scenes. He's like, I left because I couldn't stand my dad. But if you're not if you don't have a safe, you know, if you don't have a safety net of your family, like what are your options? And I think that's a reality. A lot of black (laughs) and brown boys specifically you know but black and brown people women now as well have you know you face like you don't have money for college you join the military and hopefully you make it out to to use the gi bill money um so and i loved how i i think a lot of the friction with his dad comes from him signing up for the army and it seems his dad didn't support that decision Mm. was upset about it so you know even within a black this black community, one black family, there's a lot of different viewpoints, which I also appreciated, and they all seem very real and lived in um, and had their own nuanced opinions and views about various issues yeah. that were happening. <laughs> it, I, it's remarkable how much was packed into this pilot without it feeling weighted down with exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of action. And I feel like that's a good setup because um, I haven't watched the next few episodes, even though I have screeners. But um, from what I hear, it's going to go all over the place genre-wise. So I think it needs to establish that sort of like core group yes. of characters very well. And, which it, and, and their intentions and their motives and their relationship to each other and a little bit of mystery to keep us hooked in. And I think, again... For pilot to cram all that information in and then like do a pretty, it's a pretty grounded piece until we get introduced to, you know, the Lovecraftian monsters and that, you know, and then it becomes like a full throttle, like horror genre thing, which I I typically do not like, but I really was invested at this point in all the characters and it's like monsters as opposed to like another human. Like we already got the human bad guy with the sheriff, which I'm really interested to see what will happen in the rest of the show or the rest of the season with the sheriff because he did not die even after getting his arm bitten off. You don't keep a character alive after his arm gets bitten off 
if you're not going to bring him back. I believe that's called um, putting a gun on the mantle, right? It's Chekhov's ripped arm. I don't know. Um, so I I am very excited. I mean, he like turns into this mo- like monster, but I'm sh- I'm sure he will. You know, they they make a lot of allusions to vampirism, so maybe he like goes back to a human form at some point. I'm actually not very familiar with Lovecraft monsters, so. I don't I mean, know how. What did you guys think of who, the? Well, who who needs arms when you have all these eyes and teeth and tongues? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. And I guess we can talk about the whole basis of the story, which is on Lovecraftian horror. Which, you know, H.P. Lovecraft was someone who I don't think you can call him a, a prolific writer. He wrote a lot, so I guess that would be prolific. But he didn't really become famous until after he passed away. Like he was one of those like posthumorous fame type of writers, um, but. Lovecraftian mythos is like this genre of um, of horror that has to do with the idea that humanity is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Like there are entities out there that are so cosmic and so grand that the mere sight of them would drive a normal person crazy because it would show you how insignificant you are in your in your world. Um, so I mean that's kind of the basis, and there's a whole kind of pantheon of monsters and god creatures that um, fall into this mythos based on how H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's ideas. And he had a lot of like interest in things like occult and supernatural cosmic beings. The issue with Lovecraft was that personally, as a person, he was human trash. He was racist. He was xenophobic, probably misogynistic. Who knows? Um, probably. Usually they're three for hand. three if they're the, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get that third one for free view of the other two. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was anti-black, anti-anyone foreign, anti-immigrant. Um, he wrote a poem called "The Creation of the N-Word," um, which was featured in in the in the episode uh, about how black people are pretty much just monsters. One of his most famous stories is like, "Forgot it's the something at Red Hook," but it's a story about how a cadre of immigrant devil worshippers destroys an American town. There's a lot of not so subtext subtext in a I lot of his stories. I think in real life he also like had a cat named the N-word. <laughs> like he named his cat that. Yeah, not so not a good guy. Not a good guy. Very influential in the genre of horror fiction, but not the greatest guy. So I think having a sh- a show like this with his name on it was a an epic troll to have him roll in his grave, but also really interesting way to take on this very like like you said like lovecraft stories like they were the original horror memes they like they created the cliches of like modern cosmic horror like tropes and i haven't read the book that it's based on um i know that um it was written by a a white guy um so i can't speak to how well the book portrays it but i think the way that they built the team around adapting it was really smart bringing in all this like black talent and really making sure that it's as true to the themes and feelings of the book and the themes that it's trying to tackle as possible. So I have a question for you guys. The conversation we've been having in film and TV world is now is very much headed towards, hey, you shouldn't write about XYZ if you don't have an authentic perspective or experience of that community, right? Or else it's appropriation, not appreciation. Is that conversation have been happening in the literary book world? I know Han and Marvin, you guys probably read way more than me. And then yes. on that and when we do adaptations like Lovecraft Country or even Watchmen, which was critically lauded and, you know, features you know, it is a black centered story, but it's Watchmen is a white IP and it was showrun by a white and adapted by a white creator might be very talented but so i'm just wondering like how do we feel about that in literature there there has been a movement of championing own voices content which is like people of diverse backgrounds writing about diverse characters um i think there's definitely like the purity standpoint where like white people shouldn't write people of other races um there's a lot of arguments in that space of whether or not it's okay because like then you have the counter argument, which is can Asian or can black people write about white characters? And it's not like a one-on-one comparison to the argument against racism, right? Can non-white people be racist to white people? But it takes those similar tones. So the discourse can get pretty toxic. And I think for me, I fall under more of like, and I guess 
it would be like more of a centrist view, which is like if you're going to write about something that you're not familiar with, like make sure you do your research, make sure you, you engage sensitivity readers and take their feedback seriously. And pay them. Yeah, and pay them because there's a, there are a lot of books that don't do that. Um, the most recent uh, example is a book called American Dirt um, by, I forget the author. Jeannie Cummings. Care. It's fine. Um, we don't need to know her <laughs> name. It's a book about um, Latinx characters, um, basically. Mexican characters and migrants. Yeah. But it's written by a white woman. She got like a seven-figure deal at auction for this story. People who have read it said it's pretty racist towards Latinx. Like, it's very stereotypical. She didn't do a lot of research, but the publisher put a lot of money into it. It got recommended by the Oprah Book Club. And she already has, like, a deal for a new book. Um, but a lot of people are upset because, like, it's not, even as a piece of fiction, it's not representative. and It doesn't do it well. Yeah. Um, we see the same thing with, um, in the Asian American community, that, what was that? Uh, Eleanor and Park? Story. Holy crap. I mean, that was Rainbow Rowell, uh, who was trying to make a love story with a Korean guy named Park. His first <laughs> name is Park? Oh, my God. I mean, honestly, like, that's bad. Don't get me wrong. That's bad. Obviously, just like the surface level, like, oh, you didn't do any research. But it's like, wow, how irresponsible to drop in like these philosophical questions about biracial identity and like working through like self-hatred or like this internalized self-hatred that was fostered you upon you by like other like the the community or environment you live in which is very understandable but like not unpack that or address that or like arc that at all it like just is i'm like oh okay yeah I mean, just following on all of that, American Dirt had a huge backlash um, because of this. And I think this is, I'm happy to say this happened before people became, had their more, the nation had their bigger awakening, you know, for the Black Lives Matter uh, protest this year. However, yeah, it's, it's all about who you're giving opportunities to and whose voices you're amplifying. And she did a minimal amount of research. Um, she once also claimed that her husband was an immigrant. Turned out he was a white immigrant. Um, and so there was just... A, <laughs> That's technically correct. Yeah, so there were all of these sort of, like, they were kind of backtracking, trying to, you know, cover their butts for a bit. But I think they realized, like, if they just... If she didn't have this much, like, to do about the whole launch then it might not have gained that attention and the backlash. Um, Because Oprah, of course, putting her stamp on it, created more attention. And, you know, quite a lot of people said they like the book. I haven't read it. I don't want to read it. Um, And, yeah, so it just... And I mean, that's the thing. For us, this means a lot. But for the general populace, like, for the general public, they're not in the nitty-gritty of, like, who wrote what and who they are. Like... I wonder how many people who watch Lovecraft Country even knows that the showrunner is a black woman. I think by now they do. But like, let's say that's why I, I think sometimes you can tell, even though it's like I always come back to um, Iron Fist, <laughs> which uh, is probably the one of the worst depictions of something that is supposed to be Asian inspired as far as like a a a hero and of course there was just casting storytelling all of that stuff from top to bottom was very poorly done and i did end up watching it just to give it a chance to say okay well if it's a good action series or or if he's actually good at martial arts you know any of those things can save it and no it couldn't and so i think yeah. there are those moments where i'm just like why not try for authenticity um if you're casting a guy that no one knows anyway, um, and I understand that you still think whiteness is the draw, but um, I think at this point, enough people have, I think have realized that other people can be featured and it's going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I'm of the mind that use your clout, right? Like that's a great, great thing about people like Ava DuVernay or Jordan Peele is they're using their clout to produce a lot of things that will employ more diverse writers. And that's part of their, their ethos and part of their, Yeah, I mean, it's not their, just writers, yeah. it's directors. Creators. I think uh, a lot of the directors in Lovecraft country uh, will be black. Uh, you know, the, the cast is majority black um, though. I do the one time I support, 
casting white people is when you have creepy butlers. <laughs> like that is A plus and you know the end of this episode we get a creepy butler and I'm like mm, chef's kiss this is what I came for. I love a creepy white person as a like an ominous figure. Like I think that's very appropriate. <laughs> uh so I I just I mean I totally agree with all what you guys say. I think you know the conversation we need to have is always the context of opportunity and who gets to tell the story. Uh, from what I've seen from Lovecraft Country, I really like what Misha Green has been able to do with a IP from a white person. I think having that balance at the bare minimum is necessary. And I, I really. <laughs> I'm like I'm like really excited and also really mad because I think I, that this just means I have to like go buy HBO Max. Mm. I mean, you could just wait till it's over and watch it during the trial and binge it. <sighs> that's hard. That's not as fun. That's a, that's like a lot of pressure. I'm not a. <laughs> I can't binge like you, Marvin. Especially I... like a horror like like a lot happen. I don't know. Like I think you do. Han has been saying it yeah. seems like a lot's gonna happen each episode. I mean, it's a pretty short season of like ten episodes. And there's probably going to be a lot of set pieces. I mean, in this yes. in this one, we had a few set pieces. I mean, you had Jackie Robinson destroying a Cthulhu monster, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that the dream sequence was so cool. <laughs> um, the the initial car chase with the races after the diner, the whole diner scene was amazing. Uh, and again, just really showing how smart Tick is and being like uh, how observant he is. Ah, uh, the cars uh, knowing that something's wrong. I really like the fact that. Jordan Peele has become a producer who is essentially taking back the sci-fi horror genre that has historically been really bad at race and gender storytelling, right? Like, yeah. And then, and then this, again, just sort of echoes um, Tick's embrace of a problematic genre. Like, I read so much sci-fi and fantasy growing up, but after a while, I do remember shifting over to read more women authors because they were more inclusive in ways that white male authors were not and then of course their themes were different interesting uh i but. just think the show has such an interesting tension between contradictions you know we have a sci-fi horror thriller but it's a period piece right we're setting this in the 50s and sci-fi is usually in the future uh we have a Black-centered story, you know, with a story centered around a black family, but it's based in the world and IP created by like a prolific racist, right? And then, I don't know. To me, I feel like the theme that's coming out is like this, like a reclamation, and and I think we're getting a sense of that in the story itself. You know, he is in this random ass mansion in like the middle of Massachusetts, which is. Hinting that that is his ancestral homeland through his mother's side, so he's going to reclaim this like birthright, which I'm just so like curious to as to what that means and what's going to happen. And you know, it's black bodies reclaiming this very racist, you know, which I love. It's like the biggest fuck you to H.P. Lovecraft, right? Like, yes, let's make let's let's center the people, let's make the heroes the people you hated, and let's have them defeat the monsters <laughs> you created. I mean, fuck you, dude. <laughs> so yeah I'm, I'm very i'm very uh very interesting yeah. lovecraft country is pretty much lovecraft with the subtext of racism ripped out of it and with the context of the real world reinserted into it through a black perspective right yeah i also like how you know they don't shy away from the terrible realities of what it was like to be black in america in the 1950s but that's not all you see and i hope we get to see more of like, you know, like you see loving family and you see joy and you see music and they're laughing and they have, you know, they have full of realized lives. And I hope it's not just, it's it's weird to say, like, I hope it's not just trauma porn when it's like a horror, gory, psycho, <laughs> like thriller type thing. Um, but yeah, I, I really do think that's why it matters. Like you, you don't care if, I don't think you could sustain a series like this that's based in those genres, if you don't really truly care about the characters and whether they make it out alive or not. Yeah, and I think the comparison when you were talking about trauma porn versus, you know, an actual fully realized characterization of, you know, people who are marginalized is you compare Misha Green's, like, creating 
these characters were like the younger daughter loves drawing comic books, which I love it so much versus, let's say, a Quentin Tarantino who tries to deal with racism and, you know, like Django Unchained. And like, what is that? That has no character development. That's just it's 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 just trauma porn. Like you're saying, it's violence. It's machismo. You know, it's all that type of stuff. Um, so this is why it's not just about having opportunities. It's actually getting legitimate, authentic voices and characterizations. I also, can we talk about how the main character's name, Tick, his name is Atticus, which I find hilarious and so ironic in the best way possible. So I, I'm sure that's, a, you know what, props to Matt Ruff. I will give props when props are due. <laughs> I just love that. It's such a... Uh, so, so like, in every single survey, they do, like, this survey every year of, like, what is America's favorite book? And I think, like, for the last 50 years, America's, like, the con- consistent number one winner is To Kill a Mockingbird, which we all read in school. I'm sure if you went to public school, I'm sure if you went to, like, private school, they make you read it, too. And it's a fine book, you know, but it's, like, the most American way to deal with racism ever. <laughs> it's like, okay, we read this book about a nice white educated white man who is helping a black man but they loses the case and it's really tragic but essentially his life will go on and we've learned our lesson about racism like we we get it because we read to kill a mockingbird like i you know i i feel like there's that that real sense so to like pull that and then remix it atticus becomes tick it's like this really great ironic homage while also giving it its own spin and i just I love that so much. Yeah. Uh, I'm also looking forward to this series. Um, I'm excited because um, I know I complained about Perry Mason in the beginning of the series, but that ended pretty good. So I'm excited that HBO is yeah. feeding me some new Let's hope they stick the Asian landing. Um, right. You know, once we meet Jamie Chung's character when she's not a red alien, or maybe she is a red alien. There's no way they'd be 0 for 2 over the last two years, could they? Uh, I mean, it's Misha Green, and I will trust a woman of color. To, she does have mm. an Asian writer in the room as yeah, well. Yeah, and to portray at least something better. I mean, maybe. Yeah, excited to see. Yeah. And with that, that'll do it for our discussion of episode one of Lovecraft Country. Um, I think when the season is over, um, let's get back together and work through our thoughts. By then, I think we can discuss whether or not this series stuck the landing or not. Um, but I'm looking forward to keeping up with it. It looks like it's going places. I saw wizards in the preview. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. And with that, that'll also do it for this episode of Good Pop. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Jess, Han, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they go? You can find me on Twitter at JessJewTweets. And you can find me at Anonymous. And you can follow me at Marvin Yet. You can follow the show at Good Pop Club. And also check out the rest of our episodes and subscribe to us by going to goodpop.club. Um, our podcast is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Um, if you're interested in checking out our other fellow Asian American hosted podcasts, you can go to our website at podcastpotluck.com. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. We're the host of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Every month we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a wide variety of genres from contemporary to historical fiction, fantasy to memoirs, and crime thrillers to romance. Some of our past book club picks are Pachinko by Minjin Lee, Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, and Devotion of Suspect X by Keigo Higashino. We also go over what's new in the Asian American literary world and chat with some talented Asian authors about their work. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.